Our next speaker is Tyler Griffin. Tyler Griffin was born and raised in Providence, Utah, in the beautiful Cache Valley. After serving a mission in Brazil, and I'm not going to pronounce the rest of the place, here <laughs> my Spanish is bad, uh, he returned home and completed a bachelor's degree in electrical or in computer engineering. He met, married Kaplan Crook and began teaching seminary in Brigham City, Utah. After six years in that assignment, he transferred to the institute adjacent to Utah State University, where he worked for the next seven years. One of his assignments there was working the seminary pre-service program, teaching and training potential seminary teachers for four years. He also developed an online home study seminary program. His master's and doctorate degrees are both in instructional technology. He and his wife have 10 children, five boys and five girls. So there's your balance, right? But, and he's been at BYU since August 2010. We'd like to welcome Tyler Griffin. Thank you. Appreciate that. Okay, let's get this uh, loaded up here. Okay, we are going to talk about uh, Book of Mormon internal constraints, uh, what the book has to say about its own setting, but to, to begin with, any discussion on Book of Mormon geography has to be couched in the context of the church and BYU's official statement that we don't uh, push pins into the existing maps today. Um, and so consequently, what I'm limited to in my research with uh, working with animation students at BYU and a, a virtual scriptures group that we've put together where we do work on 3D Jerusalem, the 3D Jerusalem app. Some of you have probably seen that come out that we worked on. We've done Book of Mormon uh, geography. We've done a, a recreation of Mormon's cave, all of which can be put into a virtual environment to walk through like a video game that a lot of the older generation doesn't see a lot of value in, but the younger generation absolutely loves. It seems to speak their language. But before I jump into the actual Book of Mormon internal geography, I just have to begin with Joseph Smith. It's been, it's been claimed by many that Joseph Smith made up the book. Others saying that, uh, oh, this is my personal favorite, that Joseph Smith was inspired by the devil to write the book. To those people, I always say, have you read the book and have you seen what it says about the devil in the book? Strange things to inspire to be written about you if, if that hypothesis were to be uh, the case. The other factor here, brothers and sisters, is a very simple one. If Joseph Smith is going to rise up in the frontier of, of the 20th or the 19th century, um, Western New York, and say, I want to be a prophet, so I better start producing scripture. Boy, this, this farm boy took it to a whole new level. Just look at, the, uh, look at the screen here for a second. I know this is kind of small and you might not be able to read all of them. Not counting the 116 lost pages that would translate into approximately 145 of our current size print pages. Not counting that, Joseph Smith is responsible for producing approximately 877 pages of scripture. The next closest scripture producer is Mormon at 339. 
After him, you get Moses with Genesis through Deuteronomy with 308. You have to combine the first four after Joseph, scripture producers, Mormon, Moses, Paul, and Nephi, to come up to 866 pages. Joseph, with the 116 lost pages added in there, takes his number to over 1,000. Off the charts, the world has never seen anything like this as far as scripture production. And some would say, well, he was just a brilliant mind, brilliant thinker. Just, just reflect for a moment on his age. We're going to go through these very quickly before we dive into the actual geography that's inside of the Book of Mormon that came through him. 14 years old at the first vision, everybody knows that. 17 at Moroni's first visit, we know that. 21, he got married and that's when he receives the plates. What were you doing when you were 21? He was 23 when he had those third and the fourth visions where he received the priesthood. 24 when the Book of Mormon was published and when he organized a church. What had you done by the time you were 24? 25 when the church is going to Kirtland. He's 26 years old when Doctrine and Covenants 76 comes through him. 27 when section 88 was delivered. 28 when section 93 came. 29, you can just follow this. 31, Kirtland Temple dedicated. He has his 34th birthday when he's in the Liberty Jail. 34 to 38, he's building up Nauvoo and beginning the construction on that temple there. And he's martyred when he's 38 and a half. Brothers and sisters, four years ago when I hit that same age, 38 and a half, I marveled to look at the number of missions, the number of scripture pages produced, the number of incredible, mind-blowing revelations and, and doctrines that came through this, this frontier farm boy with, we always say, a three-year formal education. But keep in mind, those were three years of formal education on the frontier in the 20th century. Basic reading, writing, and arithmetic. Most of you are very familiar with this, so we'll just go very quickly. Emma's reflections way later in life. I get that. It was 1879 when she has this interview with her son. And she says, quote, Joseph could neither write nor dictate a coherent and well-worded letter, let alone dictate a book like the Book of Mormon, or no doubt the Doctrine and Covenants or Pearl of Great Price. She then testified, it is marvelous to me, a marvel and a wonder, as much as to anyone else. She goes on to talk about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. I'm satisfied that no man could have dictated the writings of the manuscripts unless he was inspired. For when I was acting as a scribe, Joseph would dictate to me hour after hour, and when, re when returning after meals or after interruptions, he could at once begin where he had left off, without either seeing the manuscript or having any portion of it read to him. This was a usual thing for him to do. It would have been improbable that a learned man could do this. And for one so ignorant and unlearned as he was, it was simply impossible. This is also something many of you are familiar with, but just as a one more, the final um, set the stage aspect here. Joseph Smith in 1832, November 1832, decided to, to write a personal journal, begin his, his personal record. Keep in mind the date. November 1832. The Book of Mormon's been published since spring of 1829. Quite a bit of time passed. Look at page one. Joseph Smith Jr.'s record book bought for to note all the minute circumstances that comes under my observation. And you can see 
that he wrote that in his own hand, didn't like it apparently, because he crossed it out. Said, let's, let's try again. You can, picture, you can picture Joseph the farm boy looking at that saying, that don't read good. <laughs> Crossing it off and saying, let me try again. Joseph Smith Jr.'s book for record bought on the 27th of November, 1832, for the purpose to keep a, a minute account of all things that come under my observation and etc. Oh, may God grant that I may be directed in all my thoughts. Oh, bless thy servant. Amen. A little bit better, don't you think? Second, second draft was better than the rough draft. One of the interesting things about the Book of Mormon is what went to the press, or what went to the, the printing press. The printer's manuscript was what? It's an exact, Oliver's doing his best to copy exactly the rough draft. Now, this, this doesn't prove anything to anyone. I'm just saying that as you compare Joseph Smith, the man, to Joseph Smith, the prophet, seer, and revelator, the instrument in the hands of God, there is a total and complete difference. This, this reads like a farm boy. The Book of Mormon doesn't read like a farm boy. One of the amazing things is that all of the, the people who talk about the translation process, none of them mention Joseph having any kind of external help beyond the interpreters. No books, no charts, no maps, no notes, no extensive sets of, of resources to rely on to make sure he's keeping things straight. Which, by the way, once again, I'll just say, if you're, if you're going to make this up, good grief, don't create 531 pages of a new scripture. Just do First Nephi. People, that's good enough. He's a prophet, look. Just give us a few pages. 531, and you get to the end, finally you finish with this convoluted, difficult record with Lamanites and Nephites and Mulekites, and they've mentioned this other group, the Jaredites, you finally finish with Mormon chapter 8, be done. And then 9, Mormon, or Moroni finishes it off with chapter 9, be done. No, let's open it up and start the history of the Jaredites with Ether and keep going. Peculiar for a farm boy if he's trying to just be a prophet. The, the volume that's produced is remarkable. Now, <clears throat> let's jump into the geography. You can number the references in the Book of Mormon, the internal references to geography, geographical locations, or anything that has to do with geography, depending on how you parse it out. It's going to come out somewhere between 500 and 550 references to geography. You'll notice that on the small plates, most of the geographical references are very simple to interpret because they're Old World, they're Jerusalem, they're Red Sea, they're, they're across the desert over there. But once Nephi gets us to the land of the first inheritance, his interest in telling, giving us any kind of geographical markers or any kind of north-south or ups or downs, he just doesn't care about the geography. So we don't pick up geography in the New World and largely until we get to Mormon's abridgments. And Mormon, the Nephite chief captain, he cares a great deal about geography. And he is going to go to great lengths in some sections to tell us about the geography, which is very interesting. You'll notice in a, in a reading of the Book of Mormon, which area do you get the greatest uh, geographical description of? You've got choices, the land of Nephi, 
the land of Zarahemla or the land of desolation. The vast majority of our references come to us in the Book of Mormon regarding the land of Zarahemla. This, uh, this part, which is the Nephite, predominantly the Nephite lands throughout the history. Mormon knows quite a bit about the land of desolation, and he knows a lot about the land of Zarahemla, and most of what he's writing about takes place in the land of Zarahemla. Consequently, you're going to get a lot of detail with north, south, east, west, and up, up down kinds of, of descriptions in the book. Here's the amazing thing. 500 to 550 references to geography in the book with stories that are often separated by hundreds of pages having to do with the same geographic locations and somehow it just stays 100% consistent. Brothers and sisters, I can only find two instances in the book where it looks like Mormon either either I can't figure out what he's saying or what it means, or it looks like he might have gotten something messed up a little bit, or he said something a different way than maybe what he intended, which isn't unusual. We see him do that in his normal narrative flow as well. You've all seen those, right, where Mormon messes up? But I love telling my students, this book is so good that even when it's wrong, it's right. For instance, you're probably familiar with the passage in Alma 24 when, when Mormon tells you, and thus we see that they did bury their weapons of peace. And then he says, or they did bury their weapons of war for peace. You unpack that and say, what, what in the world just happened there? What did he say that for? And you picture him scratching or engraving into metal plates and I know everybody in this room has done that, where you've been writing along or typing along, and your brain gets ahead of your hand. And what happens? You write things out of order. I can picture Mormon looking down the corridor of time at you with your laptops and your, and your word processors and your erasers, and him going, oh, if only you knew how hard it is when you let your head get ahead of your hand. So he has to fix it with words. Um, to me, that might not prove anything to anybody else, but to me, if a farm boy is making this story up, and if he says to his scribe, thus we see that they did bury their weapons of war, or bury their weapons of peace, what would any farm boy do at that point as he recognizes, oh, whoops, scratch that, Oliver, take that out, make it, thus we see they did bury their weapons of war for peace, but if he's translating an ancient record, he's not going to scratch it. He's going to keep it. I love the fact that a God on high allowed Mormon's humanness to come through the work to show us what should we as humans do when we inadvertently mess up as well. You recognize you messed up, you fix it, and then you move on. And he never wallows in the mire. He leaves that for Moroni. Moroni's the one who keeps complaining about what a poor, lame writer he is. And uh, how many of you have ever gotten to the writings of Moroni and thought to yourself, oh great, here we go. Now it's Moroni. Let's slog our way through this lame author. None of you have ever done that. Because, you see, Moroni was focused on 
what he perceived as a weakness. And his weakness, as it seems to me to be revealed by God, was Moroni. Your weakness isn't your writing. Your weakness is you're comparing yourself to the brother of Jared's writing. Stop it. My grace is sufficient. Do your best and I'll make it a strength. It'll become strong. And you'll notice that post Ether 12.27, never again does Moroni compare himself to anybody else's writing. He just writes. His weakness became a strength. I love it. So with that foundation, let's dive into this book and look at some of these... Uh, some of these passages that have to do with geography and show you the complexity of what's going on internally. Um, so again, I, I'm going to say very simply that uh, we don't get involved in the arguments of is it in the heartland, is it in Mesoamerica, is it in the Baja, or as some of you are probably aware, there are theories. Now, you can buy the book on Amazon that believes that the Book of Mormon took place in Africa. The book's available. Uh, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, there are theories all over the world and in South America. So what we've done is just tried to do the best we can with the internal references, and any time you start making an internal map, there are going to be errors. We get that. So you can stretch, squeeze, compress, twist, contort, and turn these, these internal uh, relational uh, locations to fit whatever external geography you prefer. It's totally fine. Um, but let me show you uh, a couple of examples. So the first major reference to geography is going to come, obviously, in the, the biggest geographical description is going to be uh, Alma 22, verse 27 to 35. So it's here where you get uh, Mormon, the Nephite chief captain, who knows the land very well, pausing in his narrative to say, let me kind of describe the land. And in there, he describes the land southward, which is nearly surrounded by water, separated from the land northward by a narrow neck of land. Um, and he describes that there's a narrow strip of wilderness that separates the land of Nephi on the south from the land of Zarahemla on the north in the land southward. And he talks about a wilderness on the west of Zarahemla and on the east of Zarahemla and on the west of Nephi near the land of the first inheritance. He never once mentions anywhere in the book a wilderness on the east of the land of Nephi. So on our map, we didn't put a, a wilderness depiction there. Um, from here, from that basic description, now we dive into a whole bunch of other geographical issues surrounding the Book of Mormon. You ready for this? You've got, first and foremost, migrations. <clears throat> You'll notice that everything in the book seems to want to press northward. You, you will find that there's not a single major migration of people um, until way later when Mormon himself migrates southward. His dad brings him from the land of desolation down into the land of Zarahemla. Every other migration in the Book of Mormon goes which direction? North. Every single one. Which is odd for a farm boy if he's making this up from western New York. If you're going to migrate people, which direction are you going to migrate them? West and south. You're going to go out towards the frontier. Everything's west. You don't migrate north. 
in Joseph's day. And yet every single migration, the big ones go north, all of them. In Alma 63, verse 4, you take 5,400 men and their women and children from the land of Zarahemla after the, the major war chapters have closed, and they're done. They're done with the wars, and they migrate, and it says they went uh, northward. Then you turn over to uh, Alma 63, 5 through 9, and you get Hagoth, the man who goes to the West Sea near the narrow neck of land in the land bountiful, somewhere here that separates from desolation. Somewhere here, he builds an exceedingly large ship. And it tells us that a whole bunch of people get on that ship, and where did they go? They sailed northward. In your external geography preferences, where, wherever you want the book to take place, you've got to make sure that your West Sea allows for Hagoth to take an exceedingly large ship and sail a big group of people northward and then come back, pick up another group, build more ships, and they sail away and you never see them ever again. They're gone from our story. We have no idea where the Lord took them because the Book of Mormon stays centered in Zarahemla. This opens up all kinds of options for, uh, for research. Where would you expect to find Lamanite and Nephite artifacts? Oh, and by the way, lots of Lamanites left as well. The descendants of Ammon, the, the people of Ammon, the anti-Nephi-Lehites, in Helaman chapter 3, you get major migrations. Helaman 3, 3 through 14, it just describes group after group after group leaving the region that the Book of Mormon's talking about and going northward. And it goes as far as to say that they went exceedingly great distances northward, even until they came to land covered by many waters and rivers. And then from there, it says they spread into all parts of the land that were not inhabited. Where would you expect to find Nephite Lamanite remains or artifacts or whatever you want to look for? Language remnants, if possible. They're going to be spread and scattered through peoples, uh, through native populations throughout this time period. But all of them go north. Very odd for a frontier New York story. Which, by the way, I just have to throw this in here. Um, if Joseph Smith were simply trying to make a, a story to show that the Native Americans were Israelite, then he sure did a poor job of describing Indians as Joseph and his contemporaries in the 19th century would have known them. There's not a single teepee in the Book of Mormon. There's not a single powwow. There are no squaws, no braves. There's no headdresses, feathers. There's no tomahawk throwing. The, everything that would just scream Native American to the 20th, 20, or the 19th century New York frontier, Joseph did a really good job of leaving most of it out. You do have mention of tribes. You do have mention of chiefs and splitting into the tribes and warfare. But beyond that, all of the things that traditionally speak Native American, he totally left that out of the book. Okay, another thing. In the book, the geography is 100% consistent when it comes to speaking of Nephi and Zarahemla, the two lands. You'll notice that in the book of, of Omni, King Mosiah I, the, the father of King Benjamin, 
he is commanded by the Lord to take all those who will follow him, and they leave Nephi, and they go, it says they go down to, they traveled many days in the wilderness and went down to the land of Zarahemla and discovered this people. It's approximately a 20-day journey based on Alma and Helam's group later on, going from Nephi up to Zarahemla. So less than a three-week journey in the wilderness, and you've got these two populations, the Mulekites and the Nephites, who have been coexisting within three weeks' journey of each other for 350 years, and they didn't know about each other. They had no, no concept that there was another, they, they, they discovered them, which creates all kinds of fun discussions you can have about the political nature of the Book of Mormon, in that here you get this group of Nephites that are totally outnumbered by the Mulekites, and it's the Mulekite home turf that they've been on for all these years, centuries. The Nephites show up, and the Nephites have the records. The Nephites have a history. The Nephites hold the story. The Nephites control the pen. The Nephites consequently take over the power. The, the, the Mulekites don't retain the throne. It goes to Mosiah the first. And you'll notice how this could possibly create all kinds of issues for the rest of the Book of Mormon regarding kingship and rights to the throne and kingmen and people saying, we are of noble birth. Keep in mind who the Mulekites descended from. The son of Zedekiah. They're of the tribe of Judah, the tribe appointed to reign as kings. And here you get these Manassehites showing up and they're now kings. Any wonder that uh, Mosiah too says, uh, this, let's go to Judges. Let's, let's shift away from kings and go to Judges and stop some of this arguing and fighting. We know there are issues when King Benjamin's the king because people come and they're, he wants to give them one name that they can be known by. He wants to unite them. And so you see all of these issues coming to play in this book. And it doesn't matter which lens you want to look at the book through, whether it's geography or cultural or political or it doesn't matter this book is remarkable for a rough draft from a farm boy in upstate new york with three years of of uh, formal education all right uh skipping over some of these because we don't have time for all of these i want to get to some good ones okay let's go to uh Mosiah, the, the migrations in Mosiah. Keep in mind that here you get, so, so follow me for a minute on the map. You got King Mosiah I, who left, went this distance down to Zarahemla. Zarahemla is always down. Nephi is always up every single time, which is really bizarre because he always talks about going northward down to Zarahemla. Any 19th century person, if you're going northward, you're going to be going up. But the Nephites don't have satellites, and they don't have high pictures from drones to be able to see elevations and locations. They're going by what they can see. The land of Nephi is clearly highland. land of Zarahemla is clearly lowland. So wherever you want to place the Book of Mormon in external geography, just make sure that if you're going from one to the other, you're going downhill, or it at least perceives to be going downhill to the person on the ground. Um, 
So what happens is, is then you get Zenith's group that came back down. <clears throat> then you get the fun story with Noah, and Alma's people are going to be getting baptized at the waters of Mormon, which is within a day's journey out and back from wherever your city of Nephi is. Your waters of Mormon need to be within a day's journey of your, your city of Nephi. They're close. Then he's going to travel eight days' journey, Alma, and we assume that it's in a northward direction. These are all we don't know because he doesn't give us a ton of detail with the land of, of Nephi. So these are pretty arbitrary. But we know it's probably a northward direction when he stops and builds a city at the place called Helam. This won't get you into heaven, but it's just kind of fun to know. On the original manuscript, the word was Helaman. But it got changed in the typesetting of John Gilbert. He changed it from Helaman to Helam. So the guy, first guy who gets baptized was Helaman, and the city is called Helaman in the original manuscript, but it ends up in our Book of Mormon as Helam. That won't get you into heaven, but it's an appropriate name because those people had struggled with some things, and they were hurting, and Alma wanted to heal them. So there you go. And my students have to pay tuition for this kind of humor, so count yourself lucky. Now, wherever you want your geography to be, Notice that there's a 24-year period that passes where you get Limhi's people who are um, nearly immediately brought into slavery and to bondage in the city of Nephi and Shilom to the Lamanites. So for 24 years, you get this incredible story in Mosiah chapters 21 and 22 about them trying to overcome their slavery and their bondage on their own. It doesn't go so well for them. Three failed attempts, and each attempt, their slavery and bondage gets worse and worse and worse. Finally, probably facing near extinction, the people say, okay, uh, what should we do now? They turn to God. After 24 years, they turn to God. Please deliver us. Well, it just so happens that in that same time period, Ammon comes to the king up here. Ammon's not even a Nephite. He's a descendant of Zarahemla. He's a Mulekite. He's never been to the land of Nephi before. He says, hey, some of our people left like 80 years ago. Our ancestors, we've never heard anything from them. Can we go see how they're doing? And they're given permission, and they wander for 43 days in the wilderness before they finally find the land of, or the Nephites, the Limhi group, and they eventually get them out of bondage. Now, the funny part of this story is wherever your geography is placed in the Book of Mormon, you've got to make it such that you could have this big group of people leaving here, heading northward under Ammon and the 15 strongmen's direction, and after two days, your Lamanite army following this big group of people with all their flocks and their herds loses track of them in the wilderness, whatever your terrain's going to look like, and they don't just lose track of them, they lose track of any direction. They can't figure out how to get back to where they came from. They're lost. They're struggling. They're wandering. They can't even get back to the land of, or to the city of Nephi. And so they keep wandering, and they find Amulon, the wicked priest, and his other wicked priests, and the stolen Lamanite brides. That story happened over two decades ago, 
And so now you've got this well-established city, and they say, oh, don't kill our husbands, it's all good, we're all family now. And they say, Amulon, how do we get home? And Amulon says, I have no idea. And they start wandering together, and they, lo and behold, come across Helam. And Alma knows how to get them home. And he tells them exactly how to get home, and they still bring him into bondage. Now, brothers and sisters, this is an interesting thing that, not just geography stuff, but, but the, the human side. Here you get Alma, who is brought into bondage. Limhi had been in bondage for 24 years, and it was miserable. Lots and lots of people died, and their slavery was horrible, and the taxes were terrible. Alma's people get brought into bondage, because Abinadi had prophesied, if you don't repent, you will be brought into bondage. They didn't. So they do need to be brought into bondage, but it's not a hard bondage. And so in a matter of, uh, it seems like a few months, less than a year, Alma's people get delivered from their bondage, and then they make the, the final journey up into Zarahemla here. Down into Zarahemla. Let me get that right. Not up. Okay? Um, there are four major entry points between these two that are mentioned in the text. There could have been others. We just don't have access to any, any story that tells them. You have this eastern flank here over by Antionum. The city of Antionum is where the Zoramites live. You'll remember the dream team of missionaries, Alma and his sons and Zeezrom and Amulek. They go on this mission to try to prevent the Zoramites from becoming Lamanites. You can see why they wouldn't want to lose Antionum. You've also got an entrance into the land of Zarahemla through Manti. You've got one through Antipara, and then you've got one way up through Ammonihah. Interesting that of those four entrances, Ammonihah is in a place where they feel very, very comfortable, very protected. Fascinating when you get to the book of Alma, because Alma goes on a few missionary uh, jaunts here and there. He starts in Zarahemla with Alma 5, then he goes uh, east of the river Sidon to Gideon, then he comes back home, and then it says he went a day's journey west of Sidon. Um, it could have been down here. Uh, it was over bordering on the wilderness, wherever it is. And then he tells you that, it goes, that he goes three days' journey northward to Ammonihah. And when he tells these people, if you don't repent, you're going to be destroyed in one day, they laugh him to scorn. Looking at the map, you can see why they might laugh him to scorn. We don't know exactly where it is in, in existing geography, but we know it's three days' journey north of Melech, and Melech is west of Sidon, near Zarahemla. So we know they're up pretty close to the, to the land bountiful. So it's interesting that you now get stories combining. This is where I'm talking about the complexity of this story and these people and the number of pages and the number of situations going on, and it stays consistent. Remember that while Alma the Younger is doing his 14-year preaching and ministering and chief judging at the first part up here in Zarahemla, the four sons of Mosiah, his former drinking buddies, I guess you'd call them, they go on their mission down to the land of Nephi. After converting people in seven cities, those people converge on, it seems, the land of Ishmael, where uh, Ammon had begun. And it's the last reference to a location before Alma 24 is in the land of Ishmael, so we would assume that's probably where this is taking place, where they dug the deep pit 
threw their swords in, and then they go out and worship God in the very act of being killed. That army that came against them gets so tired of killing people who are thanking them and praising God in the process of, of dying that they say, enough, let's go fight Nephites. Where did they go? They went to Ammonihah, and they wiped out the city Ammonihah in one day, fulfilling Alma's prophecy. The very guys who had been killing Ammon's converts are now killing Alma's reject, the, the people who rejected Alma. Interesting that years later, um, so these anti-Nephi-Lehites leave, and about five years later, Amalekiah shows up. So all that story of Amalekiah's rise to power, the poor Lamanite king, he had only had his throne for about five years before he gets killed by Amalekiah. And Amalekiah's first desire is, I'm going to take over the Nephites. So he sends his army, and where does he send them? Ammonihah. Because that's the last place we went where we had great success as Lamanites. Perfect. They go up there, and what do they find? That uh, Captain Moroni had anticipated all of this. So we've now fortified all the cities, and this is the very worst battle in the entire history of the Book of Mormon. Chapter 49, verse 23. It's over a thousand Lamanites die, not a single Nephite died. They come home, and uh, Amalekiah is furious with them, and he curses God, and he says, I swear I will drink Moroni's blood. Uh, I don't mean to make any of you sick. We just ate lunch and all, but... Um, it's interesting that Amalekiah took his army at that point and he entered the land of Zarahemla through Antionum, through Moroni, down here in the corner. And in chapter 51, Mormon tells you the cities that he took, one after another after another, heading northward. And he lists them and he says, all of which were on the east seashore. So wherever you want your Book of Mormon to take place, your Moroni has to be lowest on the east seafront followed by Lehi, Morant, and Omner, Gid, Mulek. That's just, it's an internal constraint, and he stays consistent throughout the book in the usage of those. And he's making his way over to Bountiful when Tiancum heads him off. So wherever your Bountiful is in the external Book of Mormon model, it needs to be within a region where Tiancum can start a battle between Mulek and Bountiful, and Mulek is on your eastern seashore. They have a battle, and it's so bad, and it's so hard, that they have to stop the battle for the night, and it says that Amalekiah's men camp on the seashore, on the beach, that night. And Tiancum's men camp in the borders of the land Bountiful that night. So your land bountiful, borders of land bountiful, seashore have to be close enough that Tiancum can wake up, not fall asleep actually, get his servant and say, let's go. And they go down to the beach and they find King Amalekiah sleeping in his tent and throw a javelin through his heart. Once again, I don't want to make you sick. But Amalekiah had sworn with a, with a wrathful oath that he was going to drink Moroni's blood. Brothers and sisters, the last thing Amalekiah would have done in mortality. Laying there in his sleep as a javelin pierces his heart and lung would have caused blood to pool up as he's laying down in his throat. The very last thing Amalekiah would have done in mortality would have been choke on and drink his own blood. 
little things like this that just keep happening all over this book. It's just incredible how this story unfolds. That God's work is going to move forward. There are enemies. There are struggles. So to finish off my discussion here, here we sit. Year's 2017. We're at a Fair Mormon conference. This Book of Mormon story is alive and well. The attacks are coming from all different angles. They, they might change their, their weaponry, they might change their tactics or their techniques, but the enemy is there. And the very book itself shows us that we don't need to fear the evil curses or the evil threats. We need to follow Captain Moroni and Lehi and Tiancum's example of, yes, they lost some ground, but Captain Moroni didn't throw his hands up in the air and say, okay, fine, we give up. The stripling warriors over here in Judea in chapter 56 and, and uh, 58 and on, they didn't give up because they had lost Manti, Zezrim, Cumani, and Antipara. They figured out how do we retake this ground? How do we redefine this as Nephite soil rather than letting the devil define it as his own? And that's what I see as the great work that Fair Mormon does as an organization and others. Book of Mormon Central and MHA and so many other organizations to help fight this battle that is alive and well in this book that came through a farm boy in rural upstate New York in the 19th century. Let me finish by saying, I don't have a testimony of Joseph Smith, the farm boy. He, he was a farm boy, and we've seen his works, we've seen some of the things he did, some of the things he produced as a farm boy. But when Every time God picks up that farm boy and uses him as an instrument in his hands, I have an absolute testimony that Joseph Smith is a prophet and seer of the Lord. And I bear that witness in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Any questions? Don't some major geographical details, like the evidence of volcanism in 3rd Nephi and a Sidon that flows north, immediately rule out some geographical models? So again, you remember our first presentation today, Ben Spackman. The idea is, is you have a black box, and everybody has that black box. I have a lot of these same um, items in my black box. But I've talked to people one-on-one -on -one from a whole bunch of different persuasions. And I've, I've seen tears in their eyes as they, as they say how much this book means to them as a, a testimony of God's love for them and their people in South America. Or my son is now serving in Guatemala City Central Mission, right in the heart of, of most of the, uh, the events that some people would put as the land of Nephi. And he tells of people who just, they, they love the fact that this is a story of their land. And others who have done extensive research on Baja and the heartland. And so I would just say, leave options open. So what I try to do is, is look for plausibility in all kinds of places. Just one little quick example. Baja, the Rosenvalds have done incredible research. 
Does a lot of the geography work for most people? Maybe not, but wow, they've got some amazing things, like plant DNA that the that non-LDS scientists have, have sequenced DNA for plants in the Baja that they say match perfectly with DNA sequenced plants from Oman. And they can't figure, the scientists are like, how did plants from Oman get over to the Baja that match their, their family? How does this work? Meaning, I would look for plausibility and possibility rather than shutting down options until the Lord tells us exactly where it is. Um, that's where I go. Where can I get a copy of your map? Um, <clears throat> all of the stuff that we're producing at BYU as a virtual scriptures group, Taylor Halverson and I, with Seth Holliday from the Department of, uh, or from the Center for Animation, and we hire all of his students to do all of our, our pretty stuff, um, can be found at virtualscriptures.org, virtualscriptures.org. And unfortunately, the students aren't here right now because they're away at school, and so a lot of the site is still struggling. So just be patient. The wording's bad, but you can get some of the resources there, and we'll keep updating it and keep making things better as we go. Do you have any geographical reference that suggests, or evidence that suggests that Nephi Lehi landed on a western shore or an eastern shore? Um, the, the best evidence simply comes from that, that line in Alma 22 where it talks about on the west wilderness of the land of Nephi near the land of the first inheritance. So it would be really unusual for him to say on the west wilderness near the land, the, the landing of the first or the land of the first inheritance if the land is on the east. But it's not impossible. Again, when you're talking about geography or a lot of scriptural things that aren't clear, I think it's important to keep three things in mind. There are absolute truths at the top of the pyramid, there are probable truths, and then there are possible truths. If it's not an absolute truth, and that list is pretty small, then be careful that you don't promote a possible truth into an absolute truth or into a probable truth. Now sometimes there are, this one's more probable than others, but there are still those possibilities that could exist as Revelation comes. Thank you.